Amen and good morning. It is a joy to be here with you this morning preaching God's word. As it's already been stated, we're gonna be at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. So if you, why don't you go ahead and turn there now, Genesis chapter one, or pull it up on your phone. And while you do that, I wanna ask you a question. The question is this, what do you think about when you hear the word Intervention. What comes to mind when you hear this word? What emotions happen? Now, I did this, uh, this exercise with myself, and I'm, I'm going to share with you just a couple of the things that came to my mind. Uh, the first, interestingly enough, was a story when I was in high school. I came to my grandfather, and I said, Papa, do you have any cool stories of when you were my age? And, and he shared one when he was on a school bus, and he, and he happened to notice that there were three large kids picking on a younger kid. And that when the younger kid got off on his stop, he realized that the three large kids got off at the stop as well, even though it was not their stop. And recognizing what was going to happen, he got off the stop as well. He caught up to them and he stood between the younger boy and the three older boys and said, that is enough. Now, if you've ever had a kidney stone or you've known someone who has a kidney stone, let me just tell you, they are the worst. The absolute worst. They quickly bring me to an end of myself. I am nothing like uh, a babbling baby um, when they happen to me, right? Um, and when I go to the hospital, the only thing I am looking for is the doctor to intervene by giving me a powerful narcotic. And when it comes, it's just, oh, thank goodness. You've intervened. You've rescued me. You've stayed my pain. It's a wonderful thing. But maybe like me, when I asked that question, you also thought of some unpleasant things, right? Um, have any of you, like me, been pulled over for a traffic violation like speeding? Hmm, that's an uncomfortable intervention, right? Uh, I have somewhere to go and I have somewhere to be and it's kind of important. You're really making my life hard right now. How dare you intervene? I mean, I appreciate it when it's the other guy blowing by me on the highway and you pull him over, but when it's me, how, how dare you? And then, and then you, you're going to give me a consequence for it? A ticket? Oh, who do you think you are? This, this really deserved a ticket? You think maybe you could have just given me a warning instead? Um, another one that, that's kind of unpleasant. Uh, many of you know this about me if you know me at all. Um, one of my favorite times of year is the Bacon Festival. If you haven't heard of it, come talk to me afterwards. It is amazing. Um, but uh, it is one of my favorite places to go every single year. And the first year I went to the Bacon Festival, I literally ate so much bacon that I was terribly sick that night. Terribly sick. I actually had to call off of work the next day, which like never happens, right? And so, um, the next year comes, of course, we go to the Bacon Festival again, and I start down my same pattern as last year of eating everything in sight. And my wife comes to me and says, don't you remember what happened? I'm cutting you off. <laughs> Excuse me? I'm not sure. I might even agree with that intervention, but I don't like it. I don't, I don't, I don't appreciate what's happening now. Uh, maybe some of you have been a part of or experienced an actual intervention where there's a loved one who is going down a dark path of addiction or sin and, and, and you've come to them or you've been the one who's come to and they say, we are intervening. We are stopping you from going any 
further. And the times I've been a part of something like that, it's been uh, immensely clear. There's this bristling. There's this, how dare you stop me from what I want? Do you feel this? Do you see this? This pride that is somehow rooted deep down inside of all of us? It's okay on one hand if you're going to intervene and I'm, I'm all right with it. But on the other hand, if I'm not okay with it, don't cross that line. How dare you? We all have this, this problem of pride. So in today's message, we are, as it's been stated, we're going to examine Genesis 1 through 11. And we're going to see God's gracious intervention with sinful mankind. Now, the big idea for this message, the big thing that I am hoping you all take away from this message is this. It's that filled with pride, mankind defiantly distrusts God and needs his gracious intervention. Filled with pride, mankind defiantly distrusts God and needs his gracious intervention. Now, um, this is not a kid's Sunday. Every now and then we have a kid's Sunday, um, and it's a wonderful thing where kids are in the auditorium with us. But I really appreciate when Pastor Stephen does the even easier one to remember. So here it is. Here's the kid's big idea. Um, It's sinful people need God's help. Sinful people need God's help. And if you remember last time I preached in Mark, what I was doing is I was going through multiple stories that happened in succession, and I tried to to tie this theme that's clearly there together so that we can see the trajectory of it, so that we can see where it's pointing us, so that we can go where it's telling us to go. I want to do the same thing now in Genesis 1 through 11 with this big idea and this theme. So, So put on your radar Be looking for distrust and defiance and pride. Be looking for gracious intervention as we go. But let's start right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, 1 through 5. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So at the very beginning of our story, the very beginning of the human story, we see that it starts, that it begins because God chooses to intervene. His intervention is wonderful, it's gracious, it produces good. We read a few more chapters later and we see that he's creating, that he's forming, that he's putting life on the earth, that he's making laws for nature and how everything's going to work. And as we continue to read on, we see that everything is good. That every single time God intervenes, his intervention is good. That it's wonderful. And then we come to Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and we see that, that he takes special care to form mankind in his image. It says, then, uh, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image. So there's this, this pause, this special care that he takes to make mankind himself. And there's this, this special note, man was made in God's image as an image bearer of God. And just a side note, if you are here today and you are wondering, do you have value? Do you have worth? As Christians, we believe that this fact alone gives every single human being on the planet 
inherent value because they have been made in the image of God. There is no exception to that rule. You and every other human you come into contact with has been made in the image of God and therefore has inherent value. And then what does he do after he especially makes mankind? Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.31, we get to the end of this, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Now, in today's sermon, I'm going to use a couple of words, and two of those words are going to be tone and mood. It's something that we get from word partners, um, that's used in word partners. And tone is what the author is saying and how the author is saying it. Mood is how is the reader supposed to react and feel to what the author is saying, okay? So what is the tone and mood when we get through the creation stories of Genesis 1 and 2? It's good. It's happy. It's joyful. There's peace. Everything is, is as it should be. Shalom, right? This, this idea of things are right and peaceful. We come to the end of the creation story and we have this takeaway. The takeaway being that God's intervention is always good. We should long for his intervention because when he gets involved, he creates good. End of story. So after blessing man, God gives mankind a command. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh oh, wait a minute. Now there's this tension, and I don't know if this was you, but this was me uh, a long time ago when I first read this. I had this thought of like, well, wait a minute, God. Everything is perfect. Why would you introduce an ingredient that would mess that up, right? I mean, the analogy would be that if I don't want my children to come across trouble and I don't want them to make a mess, I don't hand the one a bucket of poisonous snakes, I don't hand the other one a bucket of glitter, and I don't hand the other one a bucket of cow manure and say, don't get in trouble, don't mess this up. I just don't introduce those ingredients and we avoid all of those things. But unlike my analogy where I would be giving my children a bad thing, that's not what's happening here. God is actually giving Adam and Eve a good thing. The truth is, is that it's good for God to give mankind a choice or a blessing. You see, one of the implications of being made in the image of God is being made with the power to choose God's way, with the freedom to choose him. This is a continuation of the good. We were not made as slaves. We were not made to be robotic. It is actually a, a greater good and a greater blessing when mankind sees God in his glory and chooses his way. God is continuing this ability for goodness to come to Adam and Eve through his intervention. It's a good and wonderful gift for us to trust and obey God. So then we come to Genesis 3, 1 through 7. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is a monumental moment in our story as human beings. We have just witnessed the fall of mankind. We have just seen pride. We have just seen defiance. We have just seen distrust. It is all there. But, but this is such a significant moment. I, I just want to take a few minutes to exactly, like, pick it apart, to examine what just happened. Well, the first thing is, is that God's word is challenged by the serpent. Um, if, if you're listening today and, and you're, you don't know this, it's very clear that as we continue to read in scripture, that the serpent is Satan. So God's word is challenged by Satan. What does he say? He goes, did God actually say? There's this, this room now for a distrust to develop. And then he goes on and he, he twists God's word. He adds something to it, right? Did he say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. He said the opposite. You can eat of any tree in the garden except this one. There's this, this perversion of twisting of what is perfect in God's word. So then what's Eve's response? She, she also perverts it. She adds to it. What does she say? She says, neither shall you touch it. That wasn't a command. God didn't say that. He said you shouldn't eat of it. Why is this significant? This is significant because adding to God's word is a form of distrust. It's not good enough for me as it is. I need something more. It's not sufficient. Let me add to it so that I'll be safe. She didn't need to add to it all. She just had to follow what God had already commanded. But it's also a form of pride. Right? I can make God's word better. I have the ability to add to it. And to be clear, we believe that God's word is perfect as is. It is only perverted when you do addition or subtraction to it. God's word is perfect as is. And then irony upon ironies, Satan calls God a liar. You will not surely die. Well, this is awful. This is an awful thing to be in a place where you might distrust God and his goodness and think he might be lying to me. But it's also an awful thing because it is more evidence of pride. What is the proposition here? How do you know if someone is lying to you? You know the truth. You see everything that there is to see. You have the truth. You can examine whether this is true or not. And so Satan's proposition is, Eve, you can examine God. You know the truth. You can see the big picture. It's pride. It's an awful thing. So Satan is opening this door further for, for distrust and pride. But then, 
Satan proposes that God does not want or know what's best for Adam and Eve and that they have the ability to usurp God and bring about an even better outcome for themselves. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, more distrust, more pride. I will be like God. I now see a better way for my life than what God has laid out before me. This fruit is pleasing to my eyes. It is desirable for food and to make me wise. So what happens? Adam and Eve both disobey God and they eat the fruit. There's this pride now and this distrust that has led to defiance of God Almighty. They have disobeyed God. This is the first big idea, the first part, right? Pride, distrust, and defiance. It's all there. But now what is the tone and mood of the story? It's devastation. A bomb has just gone off. Mankind has chosen their own way over God's way. They've distrusted God. They've defiantly chosen wrongly and they are going to suffer the consequences of their sin. And we've already learned that one of the consequences is death. One of the consequences is death. It's one of those terrible effects of sin we still see and are reminded of potently today. Even as Ted preached or prayed today, we are dealing with the effects of sin and death today. But, but now what's the tension? I, I think the tension here is what's going to happen? What's God going to do? Is, is he going to do something? Is he going to immediately just annihilate them? Is he going to abandon them and leave them to sin and death and just walk away? Is he going to intervene? And if so, how? What will that look like? This is where the second part of our big idea comes in, in God's gracious intervention. He does intervene. And immediately I'd like to propose that grace is seen because when he intervenes, he doesn't just come down and annihilate them, which was the consequence of sin was death. And death is coming, but he doesn't carry it out immediately. There's grace there when he comes down. And then he comes down to walk in the garden. He calls out Adam in Genesis 3, 9. It says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I like to think that that's read in a parental tone, right? Where are you, Adam? God's intentional in his intervention. He knows where he's to go and he's doing it. And so in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, we see that God judges sin and he gives consequences for it. We see that sin has consequences. This is one of the, the things that we learned from this passage, that sin has consequences, and one of them also is that God drives them out of the Garden of Eden. Read with me in Genesis 3, 22 through 24. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
I'm hoping that everyone sees here in this passage that this is a great mercy of the Lord to drive them away from the garden and to drive them away from the tree of life. But why? Well, we just learned that the consequences for sin is death. What did God say? You shall surely die. Well, if no death can take place, no payment for sin can be made. And if no payment for sin can be made, mankind will go on forever in his sin and suffering, separated from God for eternity. It is a mercy, a gracious intervention that God would prevent mankind from eating of this tree which would sustain him in his fallen state, forever separated from God. It's that gracious intervention. But it doesn't end there. In the middle of his intervening, God preaches hope of redemption in a future intervention. In Genesis 3, 15, he's speaking to Satan. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is sometimes referred to as the Proto-Evangelion, which just stands for um, the first gospel. But what's happening here is that God is promising that someone appointed will come from the offspring of Adam and Eve and he will crush Satan and deal with this sin. God is gracious as even while he's intervening, he's preaching a glimmer of light in mankind's darkest moment. There's a glimmer of hope of something to come, even in judgment. Let's remember our big idea then. We've seen it all. Filled with pride, mankind defiantly distrusts God and needs his gracious intervention. But the story continues from here. We're going to now look at the next section, which is Genesis 3 through 6. And what comes in the next section is a building upon of what already took place at the fall. In these uh, chapters three through six, the consequences of sin begin to play out and there is an amplification of sin, a rippling effect that we see taking place of mankind's now fallen nature. And this is going to drive mankind in a downward descent of despair and sin and darkness. We're gonna see sin and its effects start to play out It's this ripple effect that exponentially and rapidly grows. And what I, there's another word I'm going to use a few times during the sermon, and that word is framework, okay? Now, this is another word partners thing, but but when when we talk about framework, the idea is, is that we all come to everything, including the Bible, with a framework of how things work. We all come to an idea of understanding how the world works, and it's impossible not to approach something without a framework, right? Like, so I believe water's wet, and I believe that gravity's real. That's a framework that I have. But there are other things that I may believe that are actually not true, and the Bible often challenges these things. So one of the frameworks that that the Bible might be challenging here for you today is that sin is serious. Sin is serious. And in our fallen nature, we tend not to see it, all right? We are like children that go out and we bathe ourselves in mud and we have a grand old time. We're just covered in it. And then we come into our mother's freshly cleaned house and we leave mud tracks. And when we look back, it's not that offensive. Why? Because we're covered in the stuff. 
But when your clean mother comes around, believe me, it's offensive, right? That is one of the problems of sin because we are plagued with it ourselves. We tend not to see the severity of it. In fact, someone once told me, um, this, is, this is completely true. Someone once told me, Stephen, I could never believe in your God and I could never trust in him because he would judge someone and send them to hell to suffer for eternity because someone ate a piece of fruit. That is unrealistic. That is way over the top. Well, the author of Genesis, if that person had just continued to read the next couple of chapters, would see that sin is a rampant virus that grows and spreads and gets more and more serious. So let's just examine it. Let's examine the ripple effect. Let's observe what happens. Well, right off the get-go in Genesis 3, after the initial sin, after the disobedience, in verses 7 and 10, we have shame. Now it's not just disobedience, we have shame. In verse 8, we have hiding. They're now hiding themselves from goodness. They're hiding themselves from God. Go just a little bit further, verses 12 and 13, and we actually have blame shifting. We have Eve saying, it's not my fault, it's the serpent's fault. And then we come to brass and brazen Adam, and he has the nerve, he has the gall, not only to say it's the woman's fault, but he puts the onus back on God. He says, the woman you gave me, God, it's your fault that I had to deal with this problem. It's the initial throwing under the bus. This is terrible. This is awful. There's now blame shifting that's taking place. Mere moments in scripture from the initial sin. Can you see how it's already growing? Then we come to chapter four, the very next chapter. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Cain is born, and you have to think, for the initial readers, for the people who are experiencing the story, for the people who are living all of a sudden with sin, there had to be a wondering, is this the one? Is this the one that that is the offspring of Adam and Eve? Is he coming to deal with this sin and this problem that we now have? And if you know the story, what do we find out? Cain is not the one. In fact, Cain kills his brother, his younger brother, out of jealousy. We have just one generation and sin is already transformed into cold-blooded murder between brothers. Go just a little bit further in Cain's generation and you get a man named Lamech. Now listen to this. It's Genesis 4, 23 through 24. It says this. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Well, wait a minute. This is the first time in scripture we're coming across this. He has what? Two wives? Did God set it up that way? Is that how we see, saw God's plan set up in the garden? No. And then, and then we, we don't only have a man who's murdering, and there is a little debate about is this two murders that he's talking about or one, but regardless of what it is, he's not sorry. He's bragging about it. I'm so important. If Cain's revenge, revenge is this, mine is amplified even more. There's a bragging about his sin. Well, then all of a sudden, go a little bit further in the story, and Eve bores another son. His name is Seth. And you have to think, Adam and Eve, they've just dealt with an older son 
murdering their younger son. Can you imagine the heartache that they're dealing with? Can you imagine the sorrow? They must be wondering when Seth is born, please, is this the one? Is this the offspring who's coming? Is he going to fix sin and deal with Satan? Well, when we read in Genesis 5, there's a genealogy of Adam to Noah. And the answer is no. It says instead in Genesis 5.8, Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And if you read this genealogy, one of the significant things about it is this, that um, you get a statement after each person all the way down to Enoch at the end. And he died. And he died. And it's just, it goes and goes. And there's this, this pain that's supposed to be driven into your heart. The effects of sin are here. The offspring has not yet come. There's this diminishing hope because the curse is running rampant. Death, death, death. And sin is spreading all the more. Go to Genesis 6, 5 through 6. It says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Genesis 6.11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Okay, if the tone and mood were bad before in Genesis chapter 3, it is worse now, the tone and move have gone, have gone from, from bad to worse. Let me just, just paint a really quick picture for you, okay? We now have everyone all the time doing what's right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? And they are acting in such a way that they are glorifying themselves, doing only whatever they want, and God calls it wicked. But it's not the kind of wickedness of like, hey, I, I lied on this, or I cheated on this, or I, I deceived in this way, you know, I'm sorry, I, I spoke harshly to you. Those things are awful, those things are terrible. But what did I just read? This is violence. It is amplified to a point where God says, everyone's doing wicked all the time. There is violence, there is suffering, there is oppression, there is power devouring the weak. Everywhere you look, there is violence and it is grieving his heart. Sin has spread like a rampant virus. Well, where's the tension again? It's there again, isn't it? Is God going to do something? Is God going to intervene? Now, in one way, there's something I want you to see through these uh, three chapters, three through six. God has already in one way actively done something. He has held back his right hand of judgment. He has stayed his hand. It would be righteous and just for him to come down and just annihilate all this, sick, all this sickness of sin, all of this evil, all of this violence and wickedness. But he has stayed his hand. And he has allowed the consequences of sin to be seen by all. It's not that at the fall, Adam and Eve were kind of bad and now we're really bad. Adam and Eve were just as bad, but we see that with time, as sin is giving grounds to take root and spread, that it only gets worse. 
And the other thing that I want you to see is that, that God's intervention, since it is being stayed, since he is standing back, since he has not yet intervened, is that it is getting worse. Because he has not intervened, the course that can only be taken is evil, is sin, is wickedness, it's bad. God's intervention being withheld allows us to see the need for God. Just like when I preached in Psalm 6, you know, the, uh, the symptoms of our sin, the sickness of our sin can sometimes point us to God, which is a good thing. But we see the bad being played out when God steps, steps back and lets sin continue to run rampant. But eventually, it gets to this point. It gets to this point where God says, enough. This is going no further. I am putting an end to your wickedness. I'm putting an end to the suffering. I'm putting an end to the sorrow. I'm putting an end to the violence. You're done. And there's this other framework that gets challenged. Let's read this in Genesis 6, 7 through 8. It says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now what's the framework that gets challenged here and that you might have is that we don't really deserve harsh judgment. We don't really deserve, I shouldn't even say harsh judgment, just judgment. That we don't, that's the framework that I think many of us walk around with. We don't deserve this. But what the Bible is challenging, now that we've seen chapters three through six, we see that we don't really deserve grace. And that when we come to this passage of scripture and these two verses, the only surprising thing that we should find is that God is giving favor, that he is giving grace to a man named Noah. That's the surprising part of this story. Well, who's Noah? Genesis in that genealogy, Genesis 5, 28 through 29 says, when Lamech, this is a different one, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Again, do you get that sense? Well, maybe this is the one. He's supposed to bring us relief. Maybe he's the promised offspring. And so then Genesis 6, 13 through 14, God comes to Noah and he says, I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. God has come to Noah. He's given him favor. He's given him grace. And he's given him a provision to avoid the impending just judgment that is coming. But what does Noah have to do? He's just received God's word. But he has to obey it. He has to trust it. This is the opposite of defiant distrust. This is trustful obedience. And I just, I know it's kind of comical when you think about it, but here's a man, God comes to him, he lives in the desert and, the God, and, and God says, build an ark, a huge ark. You've only got hand tools, by the way. DeWalt hasn't been invented yet. And you have to do this over like a span of a hundred years in the desert. This is not a convenient type of obedience. Noah has to obey in the face of 
inconvenient obedience. But he does. And what comes is God's judgment. And God preserves Noah, his family, and two of every animal, and they all survive through God's provision in the midst of his judgment. It's another dark moment in human history, in our story, but there's still a glimmer of hope. Mankind is continuing. That offspring, he can still come. That promise made can still be good. So what's the tone and the mood of the story now that Noah and his family have survived? It's changed a little, hasn't it? There's this, this idea of, of hope, of this, this new beginning, at least we get to start again type of thing. We see in Genesis 9, 1 through 12, and in uh, Genesis 9, 7, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. We saw this with Adam, right? It's almost like a restarting, but it's more accurately a restatement. Okay, here we go again. The promise still stands. The offspring is coming. Here's your blessing. Here we go. Do you, do you sense it? Do you feel it? And I think there's this idea that, that maybe, maybe Noah is the one. Maybe he is the one that the blessing is coming through. But what do we see just, just shortly after? Nope, not Noah. One of his actions recorded shortly after the flood is that he gets drunk and falls asleep naked. Ugh, I don't like where this story's going. I thought he was supposed to be the one. I don't like this direction at all. But then we get in Genesis 9, 29, it says, and he died. Oh, that sounds just like Genesis 5. The curse is still here. The symptoms and, and the consequences of sin are still present. And he died. We're still stuck. So what is humanity going to do at the restart of this story? Well, let's, let's review our final story in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, and see how mankind is going to handle their new beginning. It says this. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Huh. Well, what's going on here? Does it, 
this kind of feels a little different than the other interventions that we've seen, right? I mean, we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, all good, right? God intervenes, everything's great, it's perfect. God's intervention is welcomed and wonderful. We see in Genesis 3, um, even though it might be unpleasant, it's still kind of like this, oh, oh my goodness, humanity has really just messed up. God, like, get over here, intervene, please. The reader's probably thinking, like, you have to do something. And he does, and he intervenes, and, and it feels right when he does. And then we see in the, in the rest of that amplification of sin, again, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And the reader's supposed to get to a point where they're crying out, how could a good God do anything else but intervene? Please intervene. And it feels, even though it's hard, it feels right. God's doing something to deal with, with sin and sorrow and wickedness and violence. But then we get to this story, and I'm not sure it's incredibly clear to you. It wasn't to me. Why did God need to come down? Why did he need to intervene? Because he did. He did come down and intervene, but, but why? Now, I'm going to just propose to you right up front that I do see a lot of similarities between Genesis 11 and Genesis 3. I'm going to walk you through them real quick so that we can see this, but there's going to be one big difference that I really want to highlight as we go, okay? So, um, let's just remember as we read this story, when we come to Genesis 2 and 9, that God has given a command that they are to be fruitful, they are to multiply, and they are to go out. They are to fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, that's the premise of which we're coming upon this story in Genesis 11. And I think that the whole problem with this story can be found in verse 4, where it says, uh, come. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, hold on. We've got some problems. The first problem is what? You're supposed to be scattering. You're supposed to be going out. And they say, no, this is a nice place. I really like it here. And I see a connection to how I can have a better life and that I can prosper that is different from what God says, right? In the garden, the fruit is desirable. It's pleasing to the eye. It's good for food. It can make one wise. I see a better way that I can get what I want. So I'm going to take it. Here, the Tower of Babel, you're supposed to go out and fill the earth and subdue it. No, we want to stay here because we connect the dots better this way. And we see a way in which we can clearly prosper. Don't you want us to prosper, God? It's this distrust that God knows best and defiance of his commands. But there's a second problem. And, and if you're not convinced of the first one, that's okay. The second one alone is big enough that this is a big problem, okay? What do they want to do in, build this, in building this city? They want to make a name for themselves. They want to exalt themselves. They want to build a tower up to God, up to his highest place. They say, let us be famous. Let us exalt ourselves for our glory. In the garden, it's, I can be like God. In the Tower of Babel, it's I can make a name for myself and dwell in the heavens of God's house. God's been down this road before. Verse five says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. 
Now, just as an aside, there's a really comic element to this, right? Mankind, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be great. I'm going to build a tower so big it reaches to the heavens. And what does God have to do? He has to come down. They didn't do it. They didn't reach him. He has to come down and he has to, to meet them. But there's also this similarity in when Adam has to come down, or when God has to come down to meet Adam in the garden and walk the cool of the garden, he's coming down to meet Adam. There's kind of that similarity of which God is now coming down to meet this mankind. In verse 6, it says, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Just as God came down and found Adam and Eve in their sin, he comes down and he finds these people in their sin. And in both cases, it's not good and something must be done. But why is this bad? I'm going to read this statement from, from the story. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Why is that bad? Doesn't that feel like a good thing? I can do and accomplish and prosper in whatever I want. One of the other uh, things in Word Partners that we talk about is traveling instructions. And in that, context matters. This is bad because of the first 10 books of the Bible. Go back and read the first 10 books that we just walked through. And what do you see? Every time there's a people who wants to glorify themselves, who want to make a name for themselves, what are they going to propose to do? Wickedness, violence. These people are not going to come together and create a paradise on their own without God. That story doesn't exist. But I do think that that is a temptation that we see even today. And I think it's a temptation that is growing as mankind becomes more and more connected today. It's this temptation of, I don't actually need God to build paradise. I don't actually need God to, to prosper in the way that I want to do. I have science. I have education. I have communication. I now know better we don't need that. We can do this ourselves. And there's an element in which God comes down and they are prospering. Here's the thing. After reading Genesis 1 through 10, the phrase, and they will do whatever they propose to do, should terrify you and me to the core. That is a terrifying proposition. So, in line with our big idea, God graciously intervenes. As he did in the garden, he gives consequences. In this case, he's confusing their language and he's sending them away. Verse 9 says, The Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. There's a sense of that now. They're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing again. They're out. It, it, it's, it's almost as if, if they're back on mission. But I want to show you something, and I have, to, I have to thank Ryan Shub for this. He's the one who actually made this connection for me. But if, uh, you don't have to turn there. But in Acts 17, 26 through 27a, it says this. Speaking of God. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. God scattered the nations here in Babel, but he did it with the intent that they would seek after him. One of the other translations that I read is that they would grope for him, that they might find him. This scattering produces a result of which they would rely upon him, the greatest goodness. But there is one big difference in this story, okay? When God came down with Adam and Eve, he found them in their shame. He found them hiding. He found them um, pretty aware of what they had just done. When God comes down to the Tower of Babel, there is no indication whatsoever that anyone is aware that this is a bad thing. Everyone's prospering. Everyone's doing well. All right, here we go. We are doing what we want to do, and we're not even hindered by it. God comes across mankind this time and they are headed full steam ahead in the wrong direction and they're not even aware. This is a slightly different type of intervention that we see unfolding. We see it unfolding because to you and me as the reader, to the people of the story, it's taking place in a sense where I'm not so sure I see it. I'm not sure, so sure I want you to intervene. I'm not so sure it's needed. I think about statements like, God, please don't hinder me from building my kingdom. I'm prospering here. I'm doing well. Why would you intervene? God, I, I know you say that, that this is good for me, but I really like what I have here. Please don't intervene and take it away. God, you really don't have my best interest at heart, so I'll take care of that. God, please don't make me do something I don't want to do. Don't intervene in a way that's going to be hard for me. I don't trust that what you're doing is good. Let me, let me build that kingdom. Let me take care of that. God is gracious enough to intervene even when we need him to and we don't want him to. So what should the posture of our hearts be towards the Lord? And this is really something that I hope all of you guys kind of take as a takeaway here. Do we long for God to be involved? Do we long for his intervention? Do we want his intervention? Do we pray in our lives that he would intervene in all areas of our life? Are we looking for the ways in which he's already intervening with his word? Are we seeing his word as the great gift of intervention that it is? Do we recognize his son that was sent into human history as the greatest intervention ever. I read to you earlier Acts 17, but I didn't read the end of verse 27. So let me read 27 again. It says, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Go a little further. Acts 17, 30 through 31 says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The promised one, the appointed one who would come from the offspring of Adam and Eve has already come. He has intervened on our behalf. He has dealt with Satan and sin. He broke the curse of death by raising from the grave. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Hebrews 7, 25, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede, intervene on their behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong death. Slavery. John 1, 4, 9. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus Christ is the glimmer of hope that we saw back in Genesis 3, 15, but he is now a light that has burst forth in overcoming glorious light and hope. He's the appointed one that we have been promised all along. He has dealt with sin and suffering. In Christ, we have God's greatest intervention. He intervened by taking our place and bearing the consequences of our sin, death. He died in our place. He stood in our place and bore the wrath of God that was poured out on him in judgment instead of us. He took that just judgment of God on our behalf and he gave us his righteousness. He provides his spirit for those who repent and trust in him so that they don't have to continue down that downward descent of sin and despair. If you've heard this message, then hopefully you are convinced that our hearts are filled with pride, distrust, and defiance. Knowing the devastating consequences of this, you and I should long for God's intervention in every aspect of our lives. We should long for his greatest intervention, which is Christ. We should desire Christ. We should seek Christ. We should plead for Christ. We should want Christ, knowing that without that great intervention, we are stuck in that downward descent of sin, despair, and hopelessness. If you've not repented, you've not turned to Christ, there is still pride, distrust, and defiance that needs to be dealt with in your life. You need God's gracious intervention in Christ. But if you have, interve- if you have repented and turned to Christ, if he has already intervened on your behalf, there's still a level of pride there's still a level of distrust and there's still a level of defiance that you need addressed in your life. And what does Christ say? He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. You can hold on to that promise uh, truthfully and trust in it. 
Christ promises that if you've repented, if you've put your your trust in him, if he's already intervened and taken your judgment, that he will continue to intervene in your life. But it is my hope that as you go out from this auditorium today, that you go out not fighting God's intervention, not fighting what Christ wants to do with your life, but on your knees, pleading for it, recognizing that we need it, humbly praying for it. Psalms 139, 23 through 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May this be the meditation and the cry of our hearts. We all need God's gracious intervention.